Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. From her ancestral lands in Hongaweka Bay, Patricia Grace brings us her new memoir. She reveals the experiences that have shaped her life, books and distinctive voice. I decided, she said, to sit myself in the middle of the story and move it back and forth and around me, placing myself at the centre, keeping characters and ideas close, and from the centre reaching to the outer circles in any direction for what I need in order to bring everything together. Author of a multitude of beloved books, including Portiki, Cousins, which has just been made into a major film, and two, Grace is in conversation with Nick Lowe in a session supported by Platinum Bold patrons Betsy and Michael Benjamin. We hope you enjoy it. Faya, Patricia, tenakwe, no mai haramai. Friends, greetings, and welcome to this session from the centre. Um, before we get underway, I would like to acknowledge uh, two of the great uh, supporters of this festival, uh, Betsy and Michael Benjamin, uh, Platinum Bold patrons for their support for this event. Uh, ko waeau, uh, he uri no auraki ahau, uh, no kaitahu ki muri hiku. Uh, my name is Nick Lowe, I'm an author and the program co-director of Word Christchurch. Uh, it is a great pleasure to be here with you and with Patricia, one of uh, the inspirations uh, for myself, for my whanau. Uh, I've, I've done this embarrassing thing where I sit with Patricia uh, in the green room beforehand and gush. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, Patricia's work was the first place that my mother saw herself reflected in fiction as a Māori woman, uh, and so uh, Patricia's stories have always been with our whānau, so it's a great honour to be here with you tonight. Thank you. Kia ora. Um, we are here, of course, to talk about From the Centre, a writer's life, uh, to collect together your, your reflections upon what it is to be an author, uh, what it is to be... Uh, one of the, I guess we say this rather than you say this, but one of our, one of our rakatira, one of our great leaders in the field of literature. Um, so I wanted to start by asking, why did you start where you started? Because here is a book about yourself and your life, and where do you begin with the land? Why did you choose to, to begin with Hongoeka? Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was just a natural the natural thing to do. Um, as usual, when I start writing something, I don't really know where I'm going, and I'll start somewhere with, in fiction, walking someone along a street or along a beach or something like that, having a, uh, a kind of idea what it will be about, but not quite knowing where to start. So I think I've done the same thing here. I just started out from where I am, where mm. I physically was mm -hmm. at, the, at, at that particular time. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a beautiful place to begin because you know, those landscapes feature in your work, they're, they're right there. So for you to introduce us 
to this, you know, to your Tūraka Waiwai is, is a magnificent place to begin. Um, what was the decision to actually write a memoir? I think I was, um, it was suggested by my publisher, by Harriet <laughs> Allen. Uh, how, how forceful uh, was the suggestion? No, it wasn't forceful at all. It was a, <laughs> really was a suggestion, mm -hmm. and which I thought at first, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. I've always said that I wasn't going to write my memoirs. But um, a couple of things occurred to me that I would like people to know. I didn't want them to know all of that. I didn't necessarily want to write all of that, but um, it, it was embedded in that story. So I started out, and once I started, I knew that I would go, you know, get, go through with it. Oh, well, I'm very glad you did, because it is a magnificent book. Uh, anyone who is, is a fan of your work, who knows your work, it's an absolute treasure trove of spotting the, the influences, the experiences, the people in your life that have ended up in your fiction. It sort of feels like a kind of skeleton key uh, to unlocking so much of, of your work and the backstory behind it. Um, and, and one of the big influences there, it seems to me, is of course your whānau. Um, and yes. I'd, I'd love you to introduce us in person uh, to some of your grandparents. Some of my, yes, well, um, on my father's side of the family, which is the Māori side, um, I had a special grandmother, his mother, but I also had lots of other grandmothers in my father's community. Um, lots of aunts, lots of uncles, lots of cousins. And um, I didn't live in that community. I lived in Wellington and um, in Wellington were my mother's family, Pākehā family, and I had very close contact with that family. Um, so I was, I was really brought up in two worlds in a way. Um, they were very different from each other, but that was, that was not a problem. I don't think it's a problem to children, especially when you are um, enveloped by both, you know. So I think I was very fortunate in, in that way. I think that enveloping sense really comes through in the book. Um, how important would you say it is, you know, to be supported by your whānau, not just as a writer, not just supported in your writing, but just being supported in who you are and to ground you in that way? Yes, I think I was, I think that was something that I'm very grateful for that I was very grounded in who I was and, um, and you know, I've mentioned my Pākehā family, my Māori family, but I always knew that I was Māori because of the way I was brought up. Uh, there, was, there was no choice for me. Mm. There was really no choice. Mm. Um, so I was endorsed in that maori by my Pākehā family, mm. but also by my Māori family. Mm. And, and how did that manifest? You know, what were the aspects of your childhood that really stand out to you? Um, I had a, a real sense of belonging amongst my, among my Māori family and my Pākehā family, but um, it was um, in, in the neighbourhood, um, 
not so much at school, but in my neighbourhood, um, it was there was an edge, and it was a it was quite difficult mm -hmm. for our family. Um, living in an all parkour world, and it was often uncomfortable, and often, you know, uh, there was a lot of racism, really, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, but uh, because of this endorsement by my families, I didn't like it, but I was able to deal with it, mm. yes. Mm. There are some really striking moments in the book, you know, where, you, as a child, you are pursued on your way home, for example, from school, you yes. know, things like that, um, which I think may come as a surprise to some people to know that this, this went on, that this, uh, but to be received into the arms of your parents, to be affirmed in that way, um, you know, has that flowed into your fiction? Do you feel like you've tried to convey some of that sense of affirming being Māori into your writing? I suppose so, um, you know, but I have written about those, um, some of the things that have happened as well mm -hmm. in the book, but also in fiction, mm -hmm. you know, like um, being attacked and, mm. and, um, and some of the verbal stuff that went on as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I was able to, you know, deal with it really. Um, I was able to deal with the attacks because they weren't big deal, really. Mm -hmm. They weren't that big deal. It wasn't like constant bullying or anything, mm. things that happened once in a while, in which my Pākehā mother <laughs> did her best to tell me how to deal with, you know. She had some quite good tips. Yeah. Would you care to share any of those tips uh, with the audience? <laughs> yes. Um, oh kick their shins or punch their stomach. <laughs> <laughs> Which I sometimes tried to do, but I was always smaller. So <laughs> I usually got a hiding, you know. <laughs> I like that we can provide literary advice and self-defense advice. <laughs> the, um, the, another aspect that really comes through in the book is what it was like for your parents, you know, to be, to be marrying across cultural lines, you know. Māori and Pākehā, generally marriages in those days were uncommon. Um, was that something you were aware of as a child? Did that awareness come later? Oh, the awareness came later mm -hmm. because they, they never spoke much about the things that, have, that had happened to them, mm -hmm. except when my father used to tell us with great glee, it seemed to me, about um, when he was using a, a, a pick and a shovel and a wheelbarrow to carve out a, a, um, a building site from the rock that Millrose was. And um, the local boys would come and do a mock haka behind him. And he put up with us for quite a while and one day he turned around as though he was going to chase them. And one and the kids ran, ran off, and one wet himself, and one fell over. And he thought that was a great joke, you know. <laughs> I didn't think, it, even even though I was quite young, I didn't think it was funny at all. Mm. <laughs> he was a, a a remarkable man. Yes. He, you know, to to single-handedly carve out a section of Wellington Hillside, 
uh, to somehow, despite the fact that if you were Māori in those days, you couldn't get a bank loan, he somehow managed to get a loan to build a house. Yes, I don't know how that happened, because um, other of his friends, um, his army friends, um, had asked him about it, but I, that was never resolved. He couldn't have relied on my mother because women weren't allowed to get bank loans either. Mm. So I don't know how he managed that. Yeah, there's a story yeah. there. There's a story there. <laughs> yes. Hopefully you'll write it for us. Yes. <laughs> um, the, the, the influence of your Pākehā family, um, we've spoken a little bit about that, but um, yeah, I'd, I'm curious to know how that has carried through into your work as well, given that your characters are so often focused on Māori lives and stories. Yes, I, I'm not 100% I'm not sure either. Um, I have written... People think that all of my stories are about Māori characters. Mm. And, uh, but there are some stories where um, there's no indication. Mm. But people, readers still seem to um, presume that they are Māori characters in them. So, I don't know how that works either. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, one of the, um, the really striking thing about this memoir is to see, you know, you, you, we get to experience with you your budding sense of a love of words, of literature, of writing, of reading. Um, where did that begin for you? Where, where, what are some of your earliest informative memories in, in your love affair with writing? Well, from as far back as I can remember, I've always liked the written word. And I was always curious about the written word and the fact that my mother used to write letters and, um, and I used to see her doing that. And so I was always asking about words on cereal packets and advertisements and... Um, and that was how I remember, you know, Wheatbix being one of my earliest words that I recognised in writing. <laughs> and, um, and I liked Sergeant Dan, the promoter man, and his little story <laughs> on the packets. And I must have pestered my mother um, uh, asking her what that word was. And, but this is as early as I can remember. And uh, um, that was how I learned to read. I didn't have books. I had one book, um, I think it was um, a book of fairy tales, but I had this other material which was all around me and um, we'd go out and I'd look at words on advertisements and writings on walls and so forth. I remember one time being... Um, waiting at a, at a bus stop with my mum and my baby brother. I think my father had already gone away to war by then. And there was a tram. I live in Wellington, all these trams rattling around all over. And um, there was a... They had placards, one each side of the front. And one of them said... Uh, and I read one of them and I said... King's Castle, and my mother said to me, oh no, that's not King's Castle, that's Knight's Castile. So, 
I didn't always get it right, you know, but I always had a go. And um, so that's where I learned to read, and that's why I could read by the time, read quite well by the time I went to school. So it's from as early as I can remember, I've been interested in the, in the written word. Mm. And, I'd, you know, it was just me, I guess. Mm. And one of the things that you need to transform reading into writing is, of course, the physical materials for writing. And having a whanau that worked in a stationery factory must have been quite useful. Oh, yeah. oh yes. <laughs> well, sometimes I get asked, um, why did I become a writer? And I say it's because my father was a stationery manufacturer and we always had raw materials. We always had paper to write on. And sometimes I think that's really true. You know, that's part of the answer anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and what were those early stories? You know, what were you writing about? Who were your characters when you very first started putting pen to paper? Well, I didn't really write stories as a child. I did what we, what we did at school. I guess I wrote letters. I, I probably wrote little stories, I can't remember them, but I, I really never started writing until, uh, you know, and there, was, there were school things that I had to do. Mm. But I never really started writing until I was in my early 20s. Mm. Started yeah. writing fiction mm. um, and short stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about some of the essays, maybe essay isn't the right word, but a, a kind of regular exercise that you were asked to do at school to, to produce a piece of writing on a theme or a topic or something like that. Um, and I remember, I, th I think there's a comment in the book that maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, but uh, they were British people doing British things. There were bluebells, there were... Um, yes. You know, things that perhaps didn't reflect your experience. Yes, we were given writing tasks, I think it was once a week, essays they were called. Um, and the topics were taken from English textbooks. And it might be like uh, a, a topic like a walk in the forest or... Um, well, let's say walk in the forest for a start anyway, walk in the forest. And so I would write about things that I'd read about because I just love to read. So all the reading that I ever done did, even when it was um, comics, comic books and comic stories, um, and the fairy tales and so forth, forests were places where there were wolves and bears and um, woodcutters who had, <laughs> who had bread and cheese in a little handkerchief on the end of a stick over their shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> and so those are the things that I thought I had to write about. I never thought that when I was in Hongawekawai and my father's whanau, we were in the bush all the time, playing and and climbing trees and all those sorts of things. But I never thought of that as being the thing that I should write about. Mm. And a day at the beach, we were at the beach all the time. I would write about um, the, the beaches that I saw in the comics that I read where there were little um, tents where you could go and change into your <laughs> bathing costumes. You know, I was using words 
that I'd never heard, that I'd only seen um, in the writing that I was doing. And I used to get good marks for all these. You know, nobody ever said, write about what you know or write about the beaches that you've been to or, or the bush that you've been in. Nobody ever said that. So that was the writing that I thought I should do. It, it seems kind of unthinkable now, yes. you know, because your generation has opened that up for my generation of writers, that when we sit down to write, our first instinct, I mean, unless we're completely saturated on Netflix, our first instinct is to go for Aotearoa, you know, to put yes. our landscapes in there. Yes. Um, so what was the process for you of actually realising that you could write from what you knew, that the local could become the, the, the stuff of literature? I think I was a pretty slow learner. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, all through the secondary schooling, the same thing was, was happening. Um, and it wasn't really till I got to teacher's college that my eyes were really opened when I read the stories of Frank Sargison, for example. Um, we had never had books put before us that were books written by New Zealanders, except for Catherine Mansfield, who, you know, who I loved, who was removed from me in time and culture and social class, you know. Um, so I recognised some of the things in her stories. But it wasn't until Frank Sargison and other New Zealand writers where I started hearing that Kiwi voice. And it was um, a while later that I heard a different Kiwi voice when I read the stories of Amelia Batistich, who was a Dalmatian New Zealander and, and um, the penny sort of dropped quite slowly, really, and where I started to see that this was what real writing was, um, writing from your own experience, writing what you knew, and, and that Shakespeare and, and all those other people had done that that's what they were doing in their own time, in their own place. That particular observation really grabbed me in the book, the sense that the, the kind of dead old writers that we had foisted upon us, even if we loved them, they were so far removed from us, but your observation yes. that they were, they were writing vividly about their own lives and times and that yes. it, was, it, was, it was immediate for them in that way yes. um, is a wonderful observation. I wonder if this might be a good uh, point to oh, invite you to read um, just on that point. That was there. The older you get, the smaller print becomes. <laughs> <laughs> Up until the reading and discussion of Sargison's A Man and His Wife, I didn't realise that daily life, everyday speech, contemporary New Zealand family relationships could be made into stories that people would read and relate to, and that the literature of the past from far countries, written mostly by men long dead in those far off places, was also living in its own time. These were people writing about 
what was close at hand in a way suitable to the telling of the story and expanded by the bunch of knowledge that informed their work, whether it be historical or social. It came from the self, from what was deeply known, including one's dreams, emotions, dreads, desires, beliefs, perceptions. It had never occurred to me that one could aspire to be a writer. Writing had seemed to belong to a different time and a different place. Now I began to understand what real writing was. When you began to write about your own backyard, um, the reactions that you had, you've had such a spectrum. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about just what was it like for you to, to, to hear people's responses, uh, you know, to seeing Māori characters in print? What, would, what was the spectrum of, uh, of reactions that you had? Oh, there was a very broad spe spectrum. Um, from, you know, I was kind of rocking the boat, I was kind of writing about people who had been marginalised and, um, but as well as that, lots and lots of positive reaction mm. as well. Mm. Um, I, it sort of surprised me, I didn't kind of think of it not being mainstream somehow. Um, and that some, up, some people would be upset by it. But I was never thrown by it. I was never thrown off track. I never thought they might be right or, you know, I should do this or should do that. I've always followed what I wanted to do. Um, not generally a very confident person about lots of things. This was the one thing that I have been confident about. Um, that I wanted to do no matter what people said, whether maybe, um, oh, this is great, I must do more of that, or this is terrible, or I'll have to tone that down or something. No, and no none of that. So I read, I've read criticisms with interest and analyses with interest, but I haven't felt influenced by them. I've always felt that, you know, I've worked very hard on this piece of work. I've done the very best that I can do. I haven't left any stone unturned to make sure that it's my best. And um, that's, and then it gets published and my job's done, you know. Um, other people who want to, and whatever else goes on, and I'm very pleased and grateful for the responses and the um, analyses and whatever, the critiques and things that people have done. Um, but that's their work. Mine's already gone. It's not for me. Mm. It's, for, it's for discussion. Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a real gift. I feel that you have the singularity and the strength to not be swayed in any way by those other voices because so often the journey is about 
getting enough affirmation to keep going when it's hard, uh, negotiating critics, negotiating reviews, all of those mm. things. But, you know, I feel like the, 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 the opening section of your memoir where you really talk about your home life, your family life, the, the great support and strength that comes there uh, stands behind you. You know, when you have those other influences yes. and reactions, it really feels to me like they're right there with you. Uh, and they wouldn't want you to be swayed or varied by that. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Mm. Um, the other person who has really been there with you and, and has, has, you know, who is such a central point in this book, I really want to acknowledge your husband, Dick. Um, uh, he, is, he comes across as such a wonderful man. His, his influence, his ideas, his stories, the contributions that he made to te ao Māori, to, to education. Um, you know, in, in some ways, this is his story as well. Um, what was that process like, writing about your beloved husband? Yes, well, book? I wanted it. Well, yes, very much it is his story as well. Even though I must say he's told his own story and I've got that really, um, the treasured memories of him um, left, us in, left us all in 2013. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I feel very fortunate that we've been together for over 50 years, ever since we were both at Teachers College together. And that before he died, he um, did a, an interview which um, talked about his childhood, an interview about his childhood. And we've got another interview um, as well, but we've made that into a, a little booklet for the, for the family. And it's very fortunate that we've got that because... He lived in a time and a place where you never see the like of, really, again. Um, he was from Ruatoria, or for, out on the coast from Ruatoria, where they lived by the land and the sea, and they weren't really part of the money economy. Mm. He was educated in the little native school and then came to Teachers College as... Um, as part of a, a quota system and then did what you know you were talking about was quite an influence in the influence of in the um, in the in Maori education you know all things that were trying to where he was ahead of his time so it was a bit stressful for him in his job always but um, there's there's a lot for me to be grateful for um, in the way he supported me when I went back teaching and how we were able to share, um, you know, we were in a country school, we had children, we were both teaching, but we did everything together. Otherwise, I couldn't have managed mm. if I mm. had to do all the housework and the childminding and the teaching and mm. so forth. So it was, um, I feel very grateful for a lot of the things. Yeah, so Kia thank ora. you for bringing that up. Kia ora. <laughs> your time in teaching, your time in schools, uh, your time spent raising five children, 
Sorry, beg your pardon, seven. <laughs> Brain fade. Um, the, the professional curiosity that myself and many writers have is how on earth did you also manage to produce so many books? You know, I have a, a two and a half year old and I was finishing my latest book under lockdown with a child and also trying to do some other stuff and it was incredibly hard. And, and yet you've managed to produce so many wonderful books under far more complex circumstances. What's your secret? Oh yes, well, <laughs> I mean they were very busy days and very organised days when I, when I started, when I decided after the publication of Waiareke in 1975, um, well, no, before that, actually, but um, that I was going, that writing was something that I was going to keep on doing. So it was just a matter of prioritising, you know, um, children, you know, the, the family, the teaching, and then finding what time I could for writing. And in those days, kids went to bed at eight o'clock. They played outside all the time. <laughs> and um, they looked after each other. But mainly my writing in the early days was done at night time mm -hmm. and, some, and in the school holidays as well, mm -hmm. yes. So that's how I got it done. Gave up some of the th other things like sewing and knitting and baking. <laughs> Gee, damn. <laughs> <laughs> to a certain degree, mm. yes. But you didn't give up... A, a long and deep engagement with Hongoeka and with the marae there and with the, you know, the, the really enormous labour of being part of a community trying to rebuild a whare, mm. uh, you know, the, even amongst all those other things and still using your school holidays and your, uh, your nights to produce books, weekends, I guess we're talking about a slightly different period here, but weekends, yeah. you are often at Hongoeka there facilitating that process. I was wondering, could you share with us just some of that process of this mahi around Ngāti Toa Rangatira and, and, and rebuilding the whare and, you know, how that uh, has also been such a, a, an important part of your life? Yes, well, when I, I became a full-time writer in 1985 when I stopped teaching and um, that was about the time when all the planning and so forth was, and the building of the whare was going on. And sorry, just can I interject there? Yeah. How long had it been since there had been a whare on that land? There hadn't ever been one. Mm -hmm. No, there hadn't ever been a whare. We were a community and we, we when we had big occasions such as Tangihanga, they were conducted at the person's house and using marquees and so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. So we never had a whare. Um, and it was the dream of the, our elders to have that there. And they had even done little bits of fundraising and so forth. And it was sort of our, our generation who saw that into reality. But um, when I gave up teaching and, and began writing full time, I thought that's what I would do all day, you know. I would sit there and I'd be writing and blah, blah, blah. But that, it didn't work like that, you know, because writing is, you can't, I can't have, oh, sorry, I keep bashing it. Um, um, 
I can't have writing without life, you know. Life has to be there for me to be able to do that part of it. So um, I had to stop writing eight hours a day and get out and do something else, and that was that was the thing. Um, the building of the fuddy, there were always tasks. There were always um, all sorts of fundraising things that needed to be done, and that's what I became involved in. Yeah. Just in, in your spare time, managed to be part of what, from the outside, it looks like a, a, an incredible feat of community organizing because and, and this is a very familiar story to myself from mm. Tahu from the south part of that process of rebuilding whare is relearning raranga it's relearning yes. various of the traditions and yeah. and then you know so it's a, it's about the process of learning as much as actually doing yes yes that's really true and you know um, i was involved in it but so was everybody else mm -hmm. So it was a very community-orientated time, and it was a big learning time. Mm. 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 So um, usually it is the elders of a generation who teach the younger ones to do carving and to do um, weaving or the tukutuku um, that's met. But in this case, it was the reverse. My daughter was the one who taught tukutuku because it was the time also of of government courses, access, maxis, all of those things going on, where it was the young, we older generation had missed out on, on those things, and the younger generation were going on courses and learning, in the case of my daughter, from very well-known, respected um, weavers, you know, like Rangi Māori here. Ah, the those who'd been taught by Rangi Māori Ehetit and mm. you know the Hetit family and so forth. And also my son had learned to carve from well respected carvers and so forth. So these were the ones who did know these things, part being able to pass their knowledge on to the younger generation. And the younger generation giving back to the to the ones who had missed out on, on that type of learning. It's a, and the, the results are truly spectacular. I've had the pleasure of staying at your marae. Yes. And, and what a space it's, you know, it's being used to facilitate the next generation of Māori writing. Te Ha, the Māori Writers Association, held their ahui there a few years ago. Uh, and you hosted us and we came down and, you know, sitting there in that whare, knowing the history of how it had been built and discussing the next generation of Māori literature um, was a real privilege. So, yeah, the, the, your community comes together to do that and then mm. gives that to our community, to the wider community as well. It's yes. a beautiful thing. Um, you speak quite a lot in the book about that land itself and all the different attempts over the years people made to get their hands on that land. Mm. Um, could you speak to that a little bit and then also what happened once that whare was built? Oh yes, well over the different generations, I think every 10 years there was something that came up which tried to, to um, 
take possession of that land in some ways or change it in, in, in different ways which would have um, dispersed our community. I think the first that I heard about that I, I think I was away teach, you know, in remote places teaching when that happened was that there was to be a coal-fired electricity plant uh, there, it was proposed, and um, people had to fight against that, but also the, uh, the people in the rest of Plymouthan didn't want that there either, so it was petitions and people door knocking, and, and um, but also they couldn't get a look in because it was private property, people owned their own property, um, and the property like now, we've got a road and we've got the beach, the road, now houses. And the road is a private road which actually goes across to the beach. So, you know, we are, the, that is our front yard mm. kind of thing. And so that gives us security mm. to, a, to a big degree. Um, and then there, there was a proposal that people didn't even know about, that when um, Dick and I went to build there, we went into, we were, we were a, a, an attempt was made to persuade us, to persuade our relatives um, throughout our community to make that road public. Um, and so they took us into a big office, I think it was a lands and survey, and they showed us a big diagram on their wall of what was proposed once that road was going to be made a public road. All over our land there, there were car parks and shops and roads and all <laughs> this and that that, the, that my relatives didn't know about, you know. But luckily, they had not. They had stuck to the, wanting the road to be kept private, and um, so that never came. That never came to anything either. But it was a struggle, you know. And I've written about that in a story called Journey, uh, mm, fictionalised mm, it, you know. Mm. But um, but that that was that. And then the proposal for Marina, um, which we had to resist and a proposal for um, a container port mm. <laughs> where they were telling us, you know, this will be such a big advantage to you. <laughs> <laughs> you will have jobs. <laughs> and we said, we have jobs. <laughs> and... and <laughs> But that particular one depended on one of the families where, where they wanted the port to be um, selling their piece of land. And um, they offered a huge amount of money. And, but luckily our relatives said, no, we don't want that. So that's a good thing, yes. So those, that's, that, that's what has gone on. But it has been different since we built the Whare Nui. It's like here we are, we're here to stay. 
they have tried to, I mean, recently they've tried to make us agree to having a public walkway through there, but we say no, people can walk if they want to, but we're not having a public walkway. So that's the, that's the only thing that comes up every few years. Mm -hmm. They want us to sign a piece of paper mm -hmm. to say people can walk there. Um, um, but we say no, we don't have to sign a people, piece of paper, but people can walk there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I just love that they thought they could enlist you and Dick to try and convince all your whanau to sell their land. <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> they clearly hadn't done their homework. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, just uh, checking out the time, we are going to go to some audience questions in a little bit. Um, so please do uh, think about your questions. I have uh, only one rule when it comes to questions, which is that it is actually a question. <laughs> please, please no long rambling statements with an upwards inflection at the end. Um, we have got microphones here, here, and I believe there are some at the back uh, and up the top as well. So um, I'll, I'll give you the signal, um, but yeah, start thinking about your questions now. Um, uh, you and I did a session in Bali a few years ago, yes. in Ubud, and I remember vividly, uh, and during question time then, a woman stood up and she said, you know, I, I love your work, um, but why do you always write about such negative things between Māori and Pākehā? You know, can't we move past that and, and get along? And you were so gracious in your reply. <laughs> um, and, and I think just now all you have to do is hand them a copy of your memoir? Yes. <laughs> I, I don't think I write about negative things. I've never no. thought that. I've no. thought, um, I've always written about um, the positive things of being Māori. Mm. I don't know how other people see that. Maybe they think it's a criticism of them. I don't know. Mm. That's on them. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the... The last thing that I wanted to come to now, just before we move on uh, to audience questions, uh, you know, we've touched on this aspect of your mahi, which is, I, I guess activism would be a fair word for it. You know, you've, you've really been vocal, you've stood up for a number of important things over the years that have been important to you and to our communities. Um, have you ever seen yourself in that role? Have you ever explicitly characterized yourself as an activist, I, you know, is there a relationship between writing and activism? What is your stance on that? No, I, well, just that I always want to do what, what's right, you know, I've always been a goody goody. <laughs> 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 but what is, what I believe in, you know, and what I think is right to do. So, sort of no big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. no big deal that you just took a test case all the way to our highest courts that led to... Oh, the no, it wasn't, a, it wasn't <laughs> a big deal. It was a difficult time, a hard mm. time. Mm. Um, uh, you're talking about the land of mine that was ancestral land mm. um, in Waikanae and only a small place, really, that was wanted for a motorway. And I just thought there again, oh, no, that's not right. I don't have to give my ancestral land for a motorway. Um, so I just kept saying no, uh, no, that I wasn't interested, not interested in selling it until the Public Works Act came along 
and said they were taking it. And I thought, oh, that's not right either. Um, and so decided, you know, it would be easy enough, really, and I think this happens to a lot of Māori landowners, well, I might as well sell it because they're going to take it anyway, you know. But I just thought I'd keep saying no and um, went to court, first of all, through the Māori Land Court to get the, the land um, redesignated as, um, uh, what is it? I forgot. Um, as Māori Reserve Land. Uh, yes, as Māori Reserve Land, that's right. And still keep the ownership of it. Um, and that went through all right, even though it was fought in court by um, land transport. And, um, but then I had to go to the environmental court, and I thought that might be different because um, NZDA is so big and so powerful, and they have so much money, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but, you know, we went to court, put our evidence forward. I didn't know we would win, I didn't think we would win, but um, I wanted, even if we didn't win, what I wanted to happen was for my children and grandchildren to know that we did our very best, mm. you know, mm. so that's what we did, but we did win, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and more than just when you set a precedent which has really amazing re uh, ramifications for yes. Māori across the country. Yes. You know, that, that the Māori, that the Tūde Whenua, those provisions of Māori reserve land yes. trump the Public Works Act, which has yes. been used to take our land for generations. Yes. So that's huge. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And I had so much support, you know, from whānau, from Māori, from people all over. And, and um, there was an open letter um, through the Mana magazine to Jerry Brownlee and John Key, I think it was, um, sort of protesting on my behalf. I didn't initiate this, but a lot of writers signed that letter. Mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, I'm always very grateful for the support. A lot of writers and other people, you know, mm -hmm. it was signed by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But um, it was all... I don't think that that letter would have made a difference to the courts, but it made a difference to me and it made a difference to my whānau to know that uh, there were people out there mm. really giving their full support. Mm. Yeah. And, and all of this while writing books, while producing all of this literature. I'm mm. astonished. <laughs> um, I've, got, I've got one more question for Patricia and then we're going to go to the audience. So please do make your way forward now at this point. If you have a question you would like to ask Patricia, come up to the microphones uh, and just be standing ready and I will uh, give you the signal when it is your turn. Um, the last question that I would like to put to you before we go to audience questions is your relationship with Tadeo. Uh, just how, how it is featured and figured in your writing and, and what is your vision for our language in the future? Yes, I've had a struggle with te reo, you know, with learning it and um, because, you know, it's far away from my, my mother tongue, really, and my parents, my husband was punished in school for speaking Māori, so it's not that long ago, 
and in my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation, they would never speak it in front of us because they thought we would be disadvantaged, you know. So uh, um, I don't know whether that's why I've had a, a fair struggle learning it, but what I am proud of is that I've, I've put my children in the way of it and they, 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 some of them are pretty fluent. Um, uh, their children are attending, um, well, some, some, a lot of the grandchildren are attending Kura Māori, where they are totally immersed in it. So um, I have great hope for the language, yes. Mm. I think it's in good hands with our ch children and grandchildren. Mm. Mm. Kia ora. Now, um, do we have any questions? Have I scared you all by <laughs> being too prescriptive with how to ask questions? No, we have someone here. Kia ora. Mm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the process of making Cousins into a movie and how that felt as a writer? Oh, well, um, yeah, Cousins into a movie. It's been a long time coming because Merata Mita and I talked about this, you know, over 20 years ago. She was the one who had the idea that Cousins would, could be made into a movie. Um, there was a struggle with the script for a number of years and it's gone through many iterations since, um, since those times. And unfortunately, Merata never lived to see the day when it was finally made into a movie. Um, but having said that, I, I feel as though the time is right now. Now is the right time for it. And so um, the script was handed over and what you see on screen is Briar Grace Smith's work, my, my um, daughter-in-law. And I think they've done a wonderful, wonderful job of the, es you know, the essence of the book, the essence of the characters is all there on screen. Yeah, I think they've done a great job. Do we have any other questions? I see someone making I didn't their know way. there were so many people here. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, I don't mind. <laughs> Thank you for coming. <laughs> Kia ora. Can I speak? Okay. Oh. Hi. Uh, it's so wonderful, amazing today to be here because uh, I studied your work in university 30 years ago wow. <laughs> and since then I've become a writer in poetry and the script so thank you so much such an honor uh, my question I have two questions first one is how many hours do you write a day normally second one is I at the moment in the crossroad about whether I, because of my budget of time for a week is I can write 15 hours a week. Either I can take two days during the week, write for a day for two, uh, 15 hours, or I could uh, allocate that 15 hours, um, three hours each day during the week. 
Uh, I, so, are you so asking for Patricia to schedule your week? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no. I can, uh, yes. Nick, uh, it's a good question, but uh, further trying to explain, I feel as a, uh, as a very experienced writer, would you think uh, it will help me to deepen my thoughts and writing skills by writing two days solid a week? That's how I feel like. Versus, yes. like, allocate um, yeah. each day Excellent. three hours. Thank you. Yes, it's a question I can't answer except <laughs> to talk about what my, you know, I've had different scenarios over different times in my life. Yes. Um, when I, I've, I've described a little bit about while I was teaching and, and so forth, where I fitted writing in as best I could. And... Um, once I became a full-time writer, I would often spend eight-hour days. Um, and middle of the night, too, is quite a good time for me when I sort of do my warm-ups and <laughs> get my ideas and solve problems and so forth. So I can only talk about what, what I do and what I have done. Um, these days, I'm gone by lunchtime. <laughs> we have time for one or two more questions. Are there any other questions here? Do we have someone here? Kia ora. Chik, chik. Kia ora. Tēnā koe te whaia, tēnā koe te mārei kura, your mahi tauira ki a tātou. One question, given your journey with te reo, is there a book in Te Reo coming from Patricia Grace any time in the near future? Do you mean me writing it in Te Reo? <laughs> no way. <laughs> no, I wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so with my children's books, I've had them translated by people who really know what, what they're doing when it comes to Te Reo. Um, my Te Reo will never be good enough for me to, to attempt to write a book in Te Reo, unfortunately. If I, if, I, if I could, that's what I would do. That's what I would have done right from the start. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Another question. Kia ora. Um, hi, Patricia. I'd like to ask, please, um, what is your why? Why do you write? Oh, that's a good one. You've got two minutes and you've got two <laughs> minutes and twenty to answer it. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Oh, I just feel a need to write. I feel an urge to write. And um, as I was saying to someone yesterday, um, writing is a big part of my life, but it's not my life. <laughs> you know, my life is my life. Um, writing is a very big part of it. If I couldn't do it, my life would be poorer. But um, all I want now is to be able to be well enough to keep on writing <laughs> and just hope that I can do that as long as I can. Mm. Awesome. Kia ora koutou katoa. Nō reira, kua miti te kōrero. Patricia, kei te mihi kia koe. Kia ora. Kia koe. Thank you. 
Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.